Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, Richard and I discuss the function of circumcision in Galatians and its implications for human identity. What is the purpose of circumcision in the Older Testament? How does it relate to baptism in the New Testament? We begin the program by reviewing the social context in Palestine during late antiquity, in which the biblical teaching of circumcision had been sabotaged by a violent expression of identity politics. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 22 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Father Mark, we keep coming back to this idea of the way that people seem to have this tendency to divide people from each other and the way that they see one group as superior over the other. And you always relate this to Galatians. Could you talk a little bit more about how you relate those? I think that Galatians is foundational for understanding how the New Testament exegetes the Old Testament. And it deals specifically with issues of clan and cult and tribe and family, all hinging on the issue of circumcision. Because in the Older Testament, circumcision was presented as all cultic rituals are presented, as an interim didactic mechanism, as a teaching device to help the people come to an understanding of correct behavior toward the weaker brother and also toward the outsider. The outsider is a category of weaker brother because it is someone who does not share in the benefits of your community on the one hand, but on the other hand, someone who produces fear in you because they threaten the things that you have. It's a very common theme in the prophets. So it's basically a mechanism to teach you about something else. It's not something in and of itself. It's what it aims at. Correct. And Father Paul Tarazi presents this beautiful analysis of circumcision in his commentary on Genesis, where he explains that initially circumcision was given to show that one should open their household to the outsider, not just to the outsider, but also to the slaves. Slaves could be circumcised and then become part of the community. Strangers could be circumcised. So it was an outward looking... Because Abraham had his entire household circumcised, including the servants. Correct. So circumcision functioned in a way to cross over boundaries. But by the time you come to late antiquity and the situation in Palestine, in the Near East, in the Roman Empire, the way I would describe it is that the Jewish community living in the Holy Land in late antiquity experienced the same dispossession that, for example, people in Africa might experience or Palestinians are experiencing under the occupation. Their land was taken from them. There were others occupying their land and they didn't have a say in their political future. And there were different ways to respond to this. The one obvious way that unfortunately most people choose is the way of violence, where you just assume the way to solve this is to assert your identity, to assert your power, 
and to stand up for yourself and fight. And so the question of identity, of Jewish identity in late antiquity was a big issue given the problem of the Roman occupation. Well, but talking about circumcision in the context of Abraham in Genesis, only Abraham is told to do this. The nations aren't told to circumcise themselves. Isn't it something that refers specifically to the Israelites since it's to Abraham and his household? Yes, it's an instruction to them because they are the ones who have received the grace of the teaching through Abraham the grace of Abraham's faith, specifically using Pauline terminology. And so therefore, they, more than the nations, are accountable to embrace the outsider. So yes, this is actually a really brilliant question you ask because this is what's so insidious about the inward-looking mentality, the selfish mentality. You speak about circumcision as though it was given to you for you. No, it was given to you as the Torah is given to you unto instruction for the sake of the others. And so getting back to the situation in late antiquity in Palestine, because of the political situation, these questions of identity and these tensions were heightened. There was a serious problem of racism and a serious risk of violence, which obviously played out in the Temple Revolt in the first century, which did not turn out so well for the Jewish community, very obviously. But in that context, this question of circumcision becomes supercharged. The Romans aren't circumcised. They don't have the same identity as us. They don't dress the way we do. We wear different clothes. We have different practices. If those bloody Goyim, occupiers, want to become a part of our community, they need to assume our identity. And this is where Paul is raising a red flag in Galatians and saying, no, excuse me, circumcision is not about your identity because we have one father, which means that the Roman occupier is your brother, which means that these Romans and Greeks who want to embrace the teaching of the Torah through Jesus Christ without being circumcised, when you tell them, no, you have to become Jewish first, you're putting your identity, your worldly identity, above the cross, which is the cancellation of human power and the claims that human beings make on land and identity and cult and so forth. So that's why it's, it's such an important text and very relevant, mind you, for the current situation politically mm -hmm. in the Holy Land. So in late antiquity, I know some of the things that Romans wrote about Jews, kind of their peculiar traits. One of them was circumcision, but then also their shunning eating certain food like pork and Sabbath was another one. All big issues in the Acts and in Galatians and the Gospel narratives. It's interesting. Do you think they all function the same way? I think that anything that you would use to distinguish yourself and to set yourself above your neighbor at the expense of your neighbor for your own glory is the same function. You know, it's funny because people think of circumcision as being obscure. They might even think of the debate about the Sabbath in a contemporary setting as being obscure. But you can easily walk into any community and quickly see the behaviors or the ideologies or even the material things that they don't just cling to, but they cling to to set themselves apart and above others. It's interesting in the form of baptism that instead of cutting someone, you pour water on them which is a way of making a harmless circumcision. One of the main issues in late antiquity with respect to circumcision specifically is that it was dangerous. They didn't have the same medical technology we had today. It was extremely painful. You couldn't dull the pain and people would die of infection. It was a huge risk for an adult male to be circumcised in that era. Someone who's baptized today who makes the argument that their baptism somehow makes them more special than people who aren't baptized is making the same mistake. It's functional, as we always say. You know, it could be your religious garb. It could be your progressive attitude. Maybe you're just a correct liberal who cares about the birds and wants to protect the trees. Or as Dostoevsky says, 
cares all about the human race but can't stand the person next door. Well, then your progressive ideology becomes an identity that makes you the opponent of your needy neighbor. So is there a possibility for a correct identity? Is identity itself a problem or is it a problem of which identity or how you view identity? I think it's clear from scripture, from Paul's teaching of the cross, that identity is a problem, period. Making any claim on identity that sets you in opposition to any other human being is unacceptable scripturally. That's why, I mean, to me, the best example of how this plays out is 1 Corinthians, because Paul is very clear that you have no right to fight if you're baptized. Why are you going to court? Now, people will go and say, well, what he means is they should go to an ecclesial court, and this is the basis for church courts. No, he's not advocating that you set up an internal court so that you can cover up all of the mistakes of the church. He's saying that if you're baptized and you take the cross seriously, you wouldn't argue, you would acquiesce to each other. It's a fundamentally different statement. When my children are fighting, my first question is, why are you fighting? And if they try to explain the reason, I cut them off. You're fighting because you refuse to humble yourself before each other. You're not fighting because of your issue, right? That's the key thing in Mm -hmm. Galatians. So it's abdication always of your power. Does it matter if the other person you're fighting with is inside or outside? Well, yes and no. You should always abdicate in love, but the stakes are higher with the person that's outside. Because if your single priority in, for example, 1 Corinthians, I mean, this is what Paul is stressing there. If your single priority is the gospel, you would never want to do anything that would make someone who's outside of your community think ill of the word of God. So the stakes are higher with the outsider. Very often people want to coddle the inside and we have to take care of each other. Yes and no, you take care of each other the way a coach takes care of his team during practice so that you can go out and actually play the game. But the real game takes place outside the borders of your community. Because ultimately what you're really striving to grow, the crop that you're nurturing, isn't the crop inside the church, it's the crop outside, it's the people who are neglected. I mean, this is the whole tension in the New Testament. But no, getting back to your point, I think identity is placed under the very same stress as Paul places your will and your ego in 1 Corinthians. Christ's identity was canceled on the cross. He made no claims, humanly speaking. I mean, it's so clear that he, humanly speaking, was weak beyond measure and a failure beyond measure. And when we talk about him using the terms of kingship and victory, it's always when he's in a place that we can't see, touch, apprehend, grasp, or control. Because ultimately when scripture talks about, you know, victory and glory and triumph, it's not talking about what we call victory and glory and triumph. We anthropomorphize these concepts, we make them in our image, and it's unavoidable. And that's why scripture is always pushing them into a place where you can't assimilate them or make them function ideologically. So with respect to identity, biologically, we can't abdicate our identity, but we can be under pressure not to impose our identity on others. That's the key. As someone once said to me, if you would like to explain Paul's argument in Galatians simply, just give an example. You have a Jew, a Muslim, a Christian, and an atheist sitting at table together. The Christian can eat bacon, the Muslim can only eat halal food, and the Jew can only eat kosher food. The atheist eats whatever the heck he wants, it doesn't matter. Let's say it's Wednesday and it's a Greek Orthodox, so he has to have, I don't know, fish, and the atheist can have a steak. The point is not that each eating the meal should impose on the other what they should eat. The point is that whatever you're eating because of the identity that you were given by God, you eat together. This is what Paul means when he says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. It's not a metaphysical statement. 
He's not interested in metaphysics. He's saying, as we hear in Genesis about male and female, that when God is sitting at the head of your marriage, you are at one. When the Torah is the feast in the midst of the table, there is neither male nor female, because whatever you are, you sit together and you share the bread of life. It's not about the imperial attitude. Like imperialists want to force everyone to speak their language. They want to force everyone to dress like them. They want to force everyone to look like them and sound like them. But this is another form of circumcision. What Paul is saying is, it is what it is. Live and let live in terms of your differences. But it's more than live and let live. You have to live together in love and fellowship with your differences. So then one question that I have is going back to the idea that baptism parallels circumcision. Is it necessary to have an initiation rite in Christianity then? Or what purpose does that serve? But when we say initiation rite, what are you initiated into? That's the question. So the word initiation and member, I mean, you can use the same word initiation and the word member to talk about a sorority. Just like the president of the United States will talk about victory and triumph. Scripture also talks about victory and triumph, but is it a one-to-one match in terms of how the words are used? Definitely not. So what are you initiated into? You're initiated into your death, which is nonsensical. What does it mean to put on Christ, to be baptized into his death, It means to give up everything that's worldly. If you're giving up everything that's worldly, baptism is not an initiation into another group. Baptism is the giving up of identity and group. And you seek fellowship in a church community where others are striving to abdicate identity and group. But if baptism is twisted to become something that clearly defines our borders, we have a problem. That's not its function scripturally. So how do we keep from painting ourselves into a corner if our point in entering into the church is abdicating our identity, then does abdicating our identity become an identity? We are the people who abdicate our identity? Is it, I mean, how do we keep from ending up in a trap there? Exactly, because identity is functional. It's just like when you go to the church that says all are welcome, except those who don't agree with us that all are welcome. Or the church that says we're open to all denominations except people who have denominations. It's not tolerance, it's not acceptance, it's not openness. It's just another form of identity and cordoning off and establishing borders. So I think the answer is that you have to constantly be reminded by Paul, as he says so beautifully in Galatians, why do you claim you are something when you are nothing? This is not just a way of talking against general arrogance or cockiness. It's a much more fundamental statement. It's a much more fundamental claim about the gospel's expectation of the human being. You are nothing because you were taken from dust and to dust you shall return. So how can you stand up and say, I am a Jew, and then proceed to act out as though others have to become like you? When the one under whom we serve lost everything and was nothing, He had no place to lay his head, no citizenship, no patrimony, no friends. So it's problematic. This is why realized eschatology is so dangerous, because we want to jump to the end when Christ is victorious, when we ourselves haven't died yet. I mean, it's cheating. Yeah, and I wonder, too, this line in the the, he, for the Christian, every homeland is a foreign land, and every foreign land is a homeland. I wonder if that kind of speaks to the almost paradoxical idea of 
abdicating one's identity without that becoming an identity then. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, this is where I feel very fortunate because I'm bicultural. I am obviously an American, but I'm also an Arab. My parents are immigrants, so I can function as an American and I can function as an Arab. Like I understand both cultures and can fit in in both places, but at the same time, I can't fit in in both places because I'm not really fully an American and I'm not really fully an Arab. And I think for me personally, this blessing of never fitting in opened my ears to this gospel teaching and became a way for me to go beyond simply not fitting in in either culture to understanding the high calling of the gospel to refuse to fit in for the sake of the needy neighbor. And it's so interesting because what it does when you really realize that you have no homeland, no citizenship, no allegiance except to the gospel of love, you suddenly find it very easy to identify with the people whom everyone else ignores, as opposed to saying, you have to become like me before I'll deal with you. Yeah, I can see what you're saying there, because I've also had the experience, although my family is very American, I've had the experience of living overseas in quite a few different places and recognizing what it is to be on the margin, misunderstood, people unable to understand you, even more than misunderstood. And that has opened my ears to this teaching about the care for those who are on the outside and spending time with people in the U.S., especially immigrants and refugees. And I tend to spend my time with them. So I see what you're saying. This There is something about having an identity that nobody cares about. I mean, one thing about the Roman Empire, everyone knew that Jews were the ones who were circumcised, that Jews were the ones who didn't eat pork. It meant that they at least knew who they were. You know, there are plenty of refugees and, and immigrants and people don't even know who they are. Whether you have an identity or not, if nobody understands what your identity is, you don't have an identity. And so maybe there's something about that too, where you're so low on the totem pole what you think about yourself and who you are doesn't matter to anybody. Exactly. And the cross is given as the Torah was given. We've talked about this at length. The cross is given to put someone who does have a home, who does have an identity, who does have security and self-assurance, to put them in that position of insecurity about who they are and where they stand so that they could identify with those on the margins. It's very powerful. And so for Paul, these expressions of religious identity become a kind of fleshly boasting. And it's not just a boasting that puffs you up and that's enough. That's where we leave it. It's a boasting that puffs you up in such a way that you injure others. And again, I want to be clear, if you are a very conservative Christian who believes that clergy should have long beards and wear cassocks and dress traditionally, that certainly can function like circumcision. But equally so, a progressive Christian who thinks that clergy should wear blue jeans and t-shirts and who makes an issue out of that, that could also function as a circumcision because you're imposing something for an ideological agenda that has nothing to do with, with the gospel. I mean, you could go on and on with these examples. Ultimately, I think Paul's argument against circumcision is not just an argument against the imposition of identity, but in a broader sense, the imposition of any human ideology, which has always at its heart the quest for self-justification and self-righteousness. People want to be right. They want to know they're with the right group, that they've joined the right religion, that they've made the right choices, and that they're on the right side. And once you feel confident in any of those questions, you become the abuser in Scripture. Thank you very much. It was a great discussion. Thanks for
heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.